Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. So we are in Hebrews uh, this week, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we have uh, a fairly lengthy text. I'll go ahead and start reading that, verses 1 through 18. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, uh, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Uh, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at a service offering repeated the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies would be made a footstool uh, for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Only four more verses if you've kind of zoned out, come, come back in. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord's, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you draw near to us? Um, in this book as we get that constant revelation of the beauty of Jesus and the, uh, the betterness of Jesus in one detail after another after another kind of added uh, to that case in front of us. Lord, I pray that we would not get tired of seeing the beauty of Jesus, that our hearts would not shut down to it, that you would give us uh, reverence and awe and encouragement and peace and joy that we have a great high priest. We have a great savior. We have a great king, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged by that. Holy Spirit, would you draw near to us the words in this text we need to see and we need to feel and we need to live in light of them being true. Uh, We cannot do that on our own. Show us Jesus and the goodness of the Father. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. So in uh, in looking at this, I kind of started out with a list. So I'm going to give a list of some things, see if you can kind of find the common thread Uh, what these things may have uh, in common. So we'll kind of jump right in. The the first thing on the list, being husky and joining in on the insanely baggy jeans craze of the 90s. Yeah. Shaving my head like all the way with a Bic razor bald while still being husky and having a five head, not a four head. Most of the decisions I made on Friday and Saturday nights from 18 to 20 years of age. 
desiring to win arguments instead of listening and diffusing tension, sharp words towards my sons when I lack patience, working harder than I have prayed for things more than one time, than as I confessed to you two weeks ago, thinking chugging chocolate milk counts as fasting. That's still on the list. I didn't really hide too much. Can you see the thread in there? Those are all things uh, that I kind of wish could be forgotten. I wish that they could be undone. I wish that they would disappear like they didn't happen. Uh, When I slowed down and thought about things to put on the list and just sat in the office just kind of thinking of things, it's an odd thing to sit there and think of things that have brought you shame or things that you kind of feel weird about or things that you wish uh, could be forgotten or undone. As I sat there and kind of thought through some things, I was surprised at how many very, very specific memories came flooding at me really quickly. And they came flying in, things I hadn't thought about in years, things that happened almost 30 years ago. When I was a, a child, they came flying in. When I slowed down to draw on memories, there were some that were so eager to come flying in. It's as if they were kind of waiting under the surface, waiting to, to kind of shame me and, and press me in a weird spot. One of the unexpected memories, and this is uh, maybe an odd thing, but it, it just came out fast and it kind of landed heavily on me when I was in fifth grade. So I was just a little bit older than my oldest, Judah. Uh, I arrived at my elementary school. And when we got there, the way things went, you'd go around to the back of the school hanging around with kids in the playground for a little bit until the bell rang, stuff like that. So I went around to find my friends, and I remember on that day there was this kind of just different attitude or maybe sadness or grief around some of the, uh, the people, and someone approached me, and they said, hey, have you heard what happened? And I said, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what's going on? And, and, and he looked at me in the eyes, and he said, Sean's mom died last night. I was a kid in our class, one that uh, everyone knew pretty well. I mean, it, it's not a huge elementary school. We had a, a class that was pr- pretty tight. We've been together for, for quite a few years at that point. Um, and as a young boy, just, you know, not super old at that point, I, I, I got caught off guard. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't used to hearing information like that and knowing how do you respond in, in, a, in, a, in a normal way or a valid way. So I didn't know really what to do. So all I could think of is in shock when I heard those words, I said, oh, man, you got to be kidding me. And, and for, for me as a young boy, that was just more like, oh, like I, I didn't expect to hear that. And the person looked at me and, and they just went off saying things like, what's wrong with you? Why would, why would you think I would joke about that? Why would you joke about that? A friend of ours, mom died. What, what's wrong with you? A couple of innocent words for me and a poor reaction kind of floored me. I wanted to, I wanted to cry that day standing there as this weird thing happened and just my reaction amongst my peers and then the feeling that I had about that uh, really kind of shook my identity. It's a small blip on the radar. It probably took three to five minutes of my life and yet it held a whole lot of feelings for me and it came at me quick. Uh, I most certainly wish that day could have been forgotten for, for quite a, a while. My subconscious though wouldn't let it. It worked hard to try and, and maybe bury it beneath the surface, but it did so unsuccessfully. And as I sat there, I thought of a handful more memories that, that man, I, I really wish could be forgotten, ones I'm not going to share here and right now. Ones that strong emotions came flying in at me. 
And, and these things, these stories, these things that I wish could be forgotten, as I began to kind of think about them, they began to just haunt me at the weirdest of times when my head hits the pillow, when I'm driving, just different times, waves of shame of different things come up in my story. And I go, man, I wish those were gone. I wish they could be forgotten. And I'd imagine that some of you have uh, some similar stories, some memories that you wish could go away that could be forgotten. Yes, I started with some goofy uh, examples, right, about being the husky boy. That was true. And to ease into some other stuff. But we all have deeper memories that we don't like to think about over things that we've done, ways that we have acted, words that we have said, things that we have neglected to do, things that we have avoided, things that we should have avoided. We have lists of moments that, that maybe aren't our brightest moments where dark sides and unappealing actions have shown themselves in our life. And again, in those moments, and when we think of those moments, something inside of us deeply wants us to be forgotten. I, I, wish, I, wish, that, I wish that weren't true. I wish nobody saw it. And I wish I didn't see it. I, I mean, I just, ah, I wish I could get away from that. There's a huge part of me that is grateful that I was born in the time that I was. I was born in 1983. The reason I'm grateful for that is my greatest mistakes happened before most people had cell phones and cell phone cameras. Yeah, right? They happened before everything was documented online, meaning I was a huge idiot. Thank God there's not a digital record of all of it. What happened before cell phone camera stays off social media? I am grateful for that. Any of you in that age category? Just me? Okay, thank you. The ones who didn't raise their hands, some of you I know are lying. I know how old you are. But what about the things that we've done that there is a record of? Not digitally, but in our mind and other people that we know or care about or we see they know about it. What do we do with those? And what do we do knowing that God sees everything? Even if we keep some things hidden from other people or our subconscious tries to bury at certain times things, there's nothing that you can keep hidden from God the Father, nothing. He sees it all. What do we do knowing that he's seen our really, really bad days? What do we do knowing that he's seen the things that we thought were done in secret? Do we try and do the cultural PR dance? Right? You, you've seen that, what people do when they, when they kind of mess up in their lives. When people mess up in culture, if they're famous or anything like that, they get in front of a camera and, and, they'll, and they'll do the little, the, the little dance, the little thing. And, and basically in that thing, what they do all the time is they say, well, that action wasn't me. Whether it's something they said or did or, you know, whatever happens, it comes to light. Their response is that action wasn't really reflective of who I am. That action wasn't really me. It doesn't reflect my values. It doesn't reflect my normative actions. It doesn't reflect my, my character. There's this kind of passing of uh, the, the buck over what they did. And my mind always thinks, then who did it, bro? Alien? Like, what happened? Somebody did that thing. Who did it if it wasn't you? Uh, and who did it represent if it wasn't you? See, our culture loves absolute freedom, but they hate accountability. And you need to understand that really clearly in all the waves of things that are, that are coming at us. The, the, the gospel of our culture is complete autonomy, complete freedom of choice, no rules is where the place of, of life comes, but they also want no accountability for it. They have to pass the blame 
or shame will eat them alive, or they have to pass the blame to still stay in the spotlight. And after that happens in the kind of cultural dance when somebody does it, most often people will kind of just move on from that action afterwards. But even if that craziness works in the culture, we have to know and we do know that we're not going to be able to fool God that way. We can't pass the the buck. We can't bait and switch him. We can't say that wasn't really me because like I see all things. It was really you. We can't turn ourselves into a victim to, to explain why we did anything bad in our lives. It doesn't work that way. So what do we do knowing that he knows and sees everything and you will not dupe him? How can we draw near knowing he knows? How can we feel safe knowing that we've made some really, really, really big mistakes, knowing that some of the memories that we wish could go away, he knows about them and he saw it? Well, this text gives really good news in reference to that. We can draw near, feel safe, have peace with God because he makes us a huge promise in this text that he will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more through Jesus because of what Jesus has done. Now, now mind you, what, what's happening in Hebrews? He's adding one block to another block to another block, just slowly over and over and over. He's building the, the case of why Jesus is such good news for our heart and our experiential feeling of peace. This is a really, really big block for us. God chooses not to remember our sins if we are in Christ. This is amazing news. God forgets the things that we desperately wish could be forgotten because of the blood of Jesus. Before we dig into the meat of this and process it together, I'll just ask you, right, low-hanging fruit, not, not an aha question. Are there things that you are holding on to, things that color the way that you think God sees you in a profoundly negative sense? Are there things that you have profound shame that, that are maybe blocking you uh, doing works in ministry, being a part of the kingdom of God, drawing near to God? Are there things that affect the way that you're able to have peace with God or draw near to him or find joy in him? Are there things in the heart that, that cause problems with how you relate to God and how close you can feel towards him and, and maybe even how he feels about you? If there is, and I know there are for some, God probably wants to take that anxiety off of you today with this text and, and whisper just gently and kindly into your ear, I forgot about that a long time ago. It's your turn too as well. That's the beauty found in this text. Why? Because that thing that you are ashamed of and want forgotten was paid for and covered by Jesus. Now, now mind you, this isn't self-help. This isn't positive talk. This isn't anything like that. Why do we get to have peace? Well, because of Christ's work. What Christ paid for has been forgotten. And what was, uh, for, or has been forgiven and what has been forgiven will be forgotten. In fact, God will not bring it up against you again to try and condemn you. It will never come back up in a court setting to, to hurt you or shame you or push you away or tell you that you are not welcome. You don't have to hide because God has decided to put away even the things that happen on your worst day. From Zephaniah, what we're beginning to understand through some of this text is, is God really does dance over his people in joy. He doesn't wait to dance on their graves and, and hurt them, right? Because our, our inner cynic can, can begin to think he's so angry and he hates me. He doesn't like me and I can't come near this text. He goes, no, no, he, he forgot about that stuff. 
He loves you and he dances over you in joy. There's profound beauty found in this and the cross and the new covenant of Jesus. So as we dig into the, the text, it starts by opening with the, the kind of efficacy of the old covenant work of the law. So what happened before Jesus and, and what happened there? And it says that the law and the sacrificial system were only a, a shadow of the good things to come through the true form that is the new covenant, the work of Jesus. Why are they only shadows? Why are they just small and incomplete pictures? Because the law could not perfect those who draw near through it. That word perfect was shown uh, quite a few times through the book of Hebrews already. Uh, in, in the original uh, language, it's atelieo, which means to finish or complete something. See, the law could not finish the job. It couldn't make you complete. It couldn't put you back together. It couldn't redeem you or fix what needs fixing. It was thoroughly lacking. The author expounds on this topic saying it could not perfect us. If it could not perfect us, then the sacrifices, uh, or if it could have perfected us, then the sacrifices could have stopped long ago because you would have been cleansed. Your conscience could be clean of all of your sins because they would have been fully paid for, but they weren't. There's a powerful detail when he's giving you the aha of the new covenant. The, the old covenant couldn't cleanse you and your mind from your sins. The new one can. The detail that it's laying before us is this. You're meant to not only be cleaned and forgiven, you're meant to feel cleaned and forgiven. That's a really big deal. The provision of the sacrifice of Christ is supposed to give the people of God and the ability to draw near through it and feel clean. The gift of God is more than you get just a, a judicially clean mark or, or a clean on paper sense about yourself. You get complete forgiveness so thoroughly that God chooses not to remember your sins. You are clean judicially and emotionally, your head and your heart and your hands. You get to feel clean. I don't have to worry that God is going to smash me or bring something back up or I'm going to have a bad day and he's going to go, I knew you were going to do this. You always, do. he doesn't do that. It's been covered. He's put it away. He has chose not to forgive or not to, uh, he's chosen to forget. That was not the right words. He's chosen to forget our sinful deeds. Why couldn't the old covenant offer that? Well, because as verse four says, it is impossible for blood, the blood of bulls or goats to take away sins. If you're here last week, all of a sudden that should set off your radar. Wait, what? The text told us last week that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, but this text says that the blood of bulls and goats is useless to take away sins. It can literally do nothing to take away or remove your sins, which raises the, the substantial and necessary question, then why, did there, why was there so much blood? Why did they kill all those bulls and all those goats? If all of that blood was, was useless, why did they do that? Why did the priest continually sprinkle blood of animals on things? Why was the sacrificial system there? Why was the cycle over and over and over if there was no forgiveness through any of it? Why in the world did we do all of that? Well, when the high priest went into the most holy place on the day of atonement and he sprinkled the blood of the animals on the mercy seat every year, God withheld his wrath for another year for the sins of the people. Thus, God received every sacrifice that preceded Christ's sacrifice as a means of suspending his wrath, not satisfying it. We don't want to be overly academic, but this is a really important thing to wrap your mind around what happened in the Old Testament. This isn't a trivial detail. All of the sacrifices before the, the sacrifice of Christ were the, were the equivalent of filing an extension on your taxes. 
They don't mean that your, your taxes aren't still going to be due. They just push back the date. Judgment is suspended. You're given more time. You're given an extension. This is what all of the old covenant did, suspended judgment through faith. God withholds his wrath and extends his kindness for longer, waiting over and over for the coming uh, sacrifice of Jesus. Now, this still involves a lot of faith. We don't want to completely dismiss it. The shedding of blood from Passover and all of the old covenant sacrifice still demonstrate a faith in God and his provision. It takes a lot to continually have done that for the people. They just didn't understand that every year when they were doing that, it was all just pointing towards the better sacrifice that would be Jesus. Now, if we back up and remember the context of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews written to kind of a smaller group of believers, uh, a house church or small church, and they were getting absolutely pummeled and worked in their day, right? They're kind of new converts. They're followers of Jesus, but their following of Jesus had become painful. It was not advantageous for them in culture to be a believer. They had converted from Judaism to Christianity, meaning they're transferring their, their hope out of the law and the old covenants into Jesus and faith in Christ and his work. But this faith was causing them a whole world of trouble. They were suffering because of it. There was anxiety in the culture. Socially, they had issues and physical persecution was coming as well. It was not helpful for them in the world that they lived in to be Christian or play the Christian card. It's causing a lot of tension. So as the author shows them that the old covenant sacrifices couldn't remove sin, some of them would have probably thought, well, how can we trust you? How do we know that you're not trying to manipulate us or keep us in our pain or take advantage of us? So the author goes to the Old Testament text to prove the same thing. He goes, okay, I'm going to show you that I didn't make this up. Let me prove by going to the Old Testament where a lot of the Old Covenant is, is held. I'm going to show you this was coming all along. So he uses the words of King David in Psalm 40 in the next verses that we find in 5 through 10. Where David says this, and this is really important, that God ultimately wants something much different than the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. He wants the obedience of willing hearts of his people. I want to be their God and then be my people. I want to write my, my, my commands on their heart and I want them to obey me and follow me. See, the people in the Old Testament seem to, to kind of fall into sin and just kind of shrug their shoulders and somebody goes, grab a bull, I messed up again. And, and like the, then they'd kill it and, and then another one and another one. And they just kind of keep doing this as if the people felt holy by, by, by reacting to their sin with a sacrifice. Like, hey, we're winning, we're being super holy. And he's going, no, 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 no. The goal isn't that you spill all this blood. The, the, the goal is an obedient heart that follows the Father. Say they were missing that God wanted a people who followed him with their hearts. He didn't want a fountain of animal blood. He wanted a people who obeyed, who saw that God was good and trusted God and that God had the path of life, that didn't think God's commands were, were reckless or, or heavy-handed or anything like that. This is what the Lord wanted. Except no person understood this or walked this out until Jesus came. Jesus was willing to obey fully, not just obedience and regular life stuff like, like we have going on, but obedience all the way to the point of death, making him the perfect sacrifice, the adequate and perfect one to make final atonement for sinners. The author then pours on the continual evidence that he's used over and over quite a few times. Again, he's going to build the case and keep using old pieces. He goes, how do we know that Jesus is the better high priest? Well, I've been telling you all along. 
He was better because he sat down. The other priests kept working because their, their sacrifices couldn't forgive you and they couldn't clear your conscience and they couldn't make you feel clean. So they keep going over and over and over. Their work was never done. It never stopped. But Christ, through his perfect sacrifice, sits down. Why? Because the work is done. He's done all that is needed. The king comes, does his work, and then our king sits in power, but he will return again. This is what the text is showing us. One day Christ will return. To give another sacrifice? No, because the sacrificing is done. He has finished it. He'll come back to judge the nations. Verse 13 says he'll come to make his enemies a footstool under his feet, which is a powerful way to say that God will reign over all things through Christ. Every knee will bow. Back in the original audience's day, many people thought that Christ was worthless, and many today claim the same. Like the echoes in culture back then and now that God is dead and Jesus is irrelevant. See, they presume that because God is patient and isn't smiting everyone, that he's weak or dead. He's not weak or dead, he's patient. But at one point, Christ will come back, the skies will split, and he will return. And again, every knee will bow in worship or judgment. Bow in gratitude of following a good and faithful king or bow in judgment and be made under his feet. See, in our day when Christianity has fallen out of favor in the culture, this is a helpful message to remember. So we need reminded kind of continually, especially in days uh, like we're facing in culture now, God wins and Jesus will reign. Over and over and over, we know the ending. It's not a, I hope that this works out and I hope that things are okay. Things may be hard. Culture may be crazy and going the opposite way of the Lord, but God has not lost. And Christ's reign and rule has not been weakened at all just because we see many people rejecting him now. By faith, we believe that our king will reign again, even if days are dark right now. Keeping the the faith in part means to continue to believe in God's provision, to continue to believe even when it's not popular in culture to believe. Now we'll dig deeper into the incredibly good news in the rest of the text. Starting with verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected has, has perfected for all time uh, those who are being sanctified. We, we don't want to skim over those words. This is talking to every Christian, new ones and old ones, ones who are on a stage and not, ones that have gone to seminary and not, all, all of us, every single Christian. There is a promise in the past tense, meaning it's already happened, it's already done, it's already been accomplished through faith, and what has already been accomplished in the past is foundational to the identity that we get if we follow Jesus. You have been perfected. It is, it is accomplished. It's finished. It's complete. Nothing you can do will add to that. And nothing that you can do will take away from that. Why? Because it's already done. It's stamped. It's sealed by the Spirit. His work is done. Now, this is hard to wrap our minds around because we live in, in a progressive world. Uh, I, I consider it a, a progressive uh, meritocracy, meaning we live in a world where the ending or the outcome is still in process because the story is not over. We believe that our ending will be dictated by the, by the spot we are at when things are done, not something that has happened already. So if we're kind of down on ourselves, if our faith is weak, if we've kind of fallen into to some sin, or we're just having a little bit of a, of a difficult or weak time in our faith, what we'll do is we'll project our standing uh, in front of God in accordance with how we feel in that moment. 
and I'm a little bit weaker, I've kind of made some mistakes, so we will, we'll think because maybe we're a little bit down or not as strong in our faith that God must be down on us. That our perfection or standing may be waning or in the, the balance. This is the projection of the world or the things that are happening in, in current culture onto the heart of the creator. The beauty in this text is, is your perfection and your redemption are if you are following Jesus, they're, they're, they're in the past. They've, they've already been done. You, you, can't be, you, you can't be downgraded. They won't be taken away. You can't be added to them. You, you are, you're safe. Which is why the author says so emphatically to the original audience and to us that Christ has done something already. Our current struggle our, our, our current suffering does not dictate what Christ has accomplished. That is really good news. To clarify, being perfect doesn't mean that, that you won't mess up or that you won't sin anymore or that you're immune to sin or that you won't ever fall short. You will probably act uncharitably in traffic. You'll probably pop off at the mouth. You may have a day where envy or lust or bitterness or something like that kind of grab a hold of you. The point is... Not that you won't ever sin again, but when sin does kind of rear its head, that you're still forgiven, that you are still accepted, that there is still a path for you to come into the presence of the Lord. Remember a couple chapters ago, the beauty that we saw is Jesus makes a way that we can draw near to the throne room of God. This telling us that we are perfected in the past means that there's never a time that you can't draw near to God. Even with a bad day, even with a bad day. Even with a bad week, even with a bad week. He has perfected his own. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. Now, there are people who hear this and, and, and they'll scream things like hyper-Calvinism or cheap grace or anything like that as if this is kind of a, a, a way for a person to, to have license to act a fool and sin all of their life and just claim Jesus in word as if you can kind of do whatever you want and just the, the consequences are gone. But if you look at the text, there's, there's kind of not so fine print, but, but fine print in it. The author says that Christ has perfected those being, what, what's the word? Sanctified. Sanctification is a process, and it's pretty clear. It's a process of following Jesus in such a way that over time you begin to, to, to adopt his heart and become more like him and walk more like him. He molds you and he shapes you. This is meant to happen to every Christian, all, not just pastors, not just some, not just Billy Graham, not just all stars. Every believer becomes more like the one that they are following. God saves us through Jesus, and as we follow Jesus, Jesus shapes us through the Holy Spirit. So the text doesn't say that Christ has perfected anyone who claims Jesus but doesn't follow him. It doesn't say that you can claim Jesus once, get a pass on everything, and never follow him and become more like him says those who are following Jesus and being sanctified, becoming more like him, being transformed to, from one degree of glory to another, those are the real believers, and all real believers are perfected already. For the person who sin is their normal choice, it is their, their normal way of doing things, and they have a blatantly sinful lifestyle, this promise isn't for them, and it isn't about them. For them, sin isn't a blip on the radar, it is the way that they live. This person isn't being sanctified, they aren't being perfected, and they're not following Jesus. That would be a cheap grace mentality. But for the ones who, to the best of their abilities, are following Jesus, there's safety there. What has happened has already happened in the past. The text was never meant to give faithless people license to sin forever. It gives followers of Jesus grace to mess up and not feel destroyed in their falling short. 
to know that even when they fall short at different times or miss the mark, that their perfection and their forgiveness isn't in the balance, you're safe. Why? Because God has chosen not to remember your sins or your lawless deeds. For those who are following Jesus, who the, who the, the laws have been written on their minds and their heart, and they're beginning to obey out of a willing heart because they trust God and, and know God, even when they fall short and mess up, the Holy Spirit begins to testify to them. Remember who you are. You have been perfected already. God has chosen not to remember what you have done. Now notice the wording. It doesn't say God forgot somehow or lost knowledge because people trip up over this. God doesn't learn new things and he doesn't unlearn things or lose wisdom. God isn't a progressing reality like we are. He isn't uh, getting smarter or wiser. He chooses to not remember to not hold against you, to not bring back up in a way that removes your redemption. See, God never will bring up your sin in a way to judge you or push you away again if you are in Christ. Your sins will never be grounds to condemn you. What, what, what do we do when we are wronged or we see the faults of other people and you catch us on a bad day? We look at them and go, I knew you were going to do this. This is who you are. This is what you always do. I'm, I'm disappointed in this. God will never do that. He'll never keep you away or condemn you or say, I knew you were going to do that again. I can't believe that I paid for you. God chooses to forget. Why? Again, because the perfect sacrifice has already been made for every sin. Now, in a believer's life, we do need to clarify some things. A believer will still feel conviction over sin. And a believer will still be called to repent by the Holy Spirit for their sin. This is what a good and loving God does. When you go astray and when you fall short and you mess up and you begin to trust in other things, he calls his children back again. And he gives you conviction as a way to bring you close. A good father does this. But believers need to make sure not to, to misinterpret conviction as God threatening to condemn you or pull your redemption away. For sensitive, conscious believers, this is a really big deal to understand. God disciplines those he loves, and he calls them to repent through that conviction because the most gracious thing he can do is turn you back to him. Why? Because life and flourishing come when you're following him and acting in accordance to his laws. God doesn't condemn those who Christ has already covered, but he will convict you, and that is his kindness. Again, conviction is a good sign and a sign of health. If you follow Jesus and there is no conviction over anything for long, long, long swaths of time, something is wrong. Why? Because though you have a perfected state judicially and you can feel clean, you and I kind of still hit some, some blips on the radar and we kind of mess up a little bit. The Holy Spirit walking near will go, hey, buddy, let me, let, me, let me walk you back towards Jesus. Let me help you follow Jesus again in this. Conviction is normal and good. Condemnation when you are Christ's is the voice of the enemy accusing and saying that you are not loved. You cannot draw near. You better run. Those are different. What's the result of all this? Verse 18 says, it's that we live by faith in this sacrifice where forgiveness has been granted. Faith looks like accepting that fully. And it looks like not trying to make further sacrifices or turn to external sacrifices or external things. Faith in Jesus leads to those believing in the work of Jesus even when they sin. 
When you sin, turn back to Christ in repentance. Don't run from God. Don't try and double down on, on, on religious activities to, to kind of right the wrongs in the scales. Instead, just turn back to Christ. I didn't follow you very well that way. I didn't trust you in that. I, I didn't even care about you in that. I mean, I, I want to follow you. I want to follow you more in that area of my life. The question for us today as we kind of land the, the plane is, is your faith Is your faith in Jesus in such a way? Are you being sanctified in such a way that even when maybe progression of your faith is slow, that you feel clean before the Lord? Is that a reality for you? Do you feel complete? Do you feel judicially perfected that the perfect sacrifice has covered even your, your worst days and your worst nights and the things that you wish could be forgiven. Do you believe that you're clean before the Father or you still have a list of things that you, you just desperately wish that would be forgotten? A list of things that you believe that God is still going to hold against you or, or, or has on a list to, to, to bring back up or, or to hurt you with. Do you believe that he wants to condemn you instead of convict you? Because God wants his children to know and this is the good news. He forgot about your worst day a long time ago. He put it away. He's never going to bring it back up. He's not going to have a bad day and rage at you for it. Your worst moment, your worst season, the things that you've worked really hard to, to bury and forget about, the stuff that haunts you and makes you feel broken inside at times, Jesus paid for it all and God forgot about it. That is your reality. I don't know about you, but that's something I need to be reminded of because I have a strong condemner in my head quite often. That's part of the reason that Jesus said the words, come to me all who are weary and need rest for your souls. Rest from the condemnation of your own heart and the condemnation of the enemy. It's an invitation. When condemnation is pressing on you, when conviction turns sideways into condemnation, when your faults and your weaknesses try to crush your hope or your peace, it's to understand that Christ has already dealt with that and you don't need to anymore. If you need a fresh reminder of that, that Jesus says, come and, and, and feel forgiven and, and, and feel the righteousness that I give you, the play for us as we're, we're working into becoming a people of prayer is to ask the Holy Spirit in prayer today, will you help me? God, I, I'm struggling to believe that that's true. Abba, Father, Daddy, I, I need to believe your words because I, I, I don't right now. I, I feel like you're angry. I, I, I feel like I can't be clean. Will you help me? Holy Spirit, let me see my sanctification as proof that you've perfected me. Help me walk in the peace that you have made available. For some of us, the greatest trick the enemy can do is continually to tell us lies that God is still remembering and waiting to crush you for things that are long, long, long gone. I pray that we'll see the beauty of the fullness of Christ's work through this. We are cleansed fully and finally if we are in Jesus. Are we perfect? No, absolutely not, but we've been perfected. It's meant to bring us profound peace, even in a chaotic world. Our king has paid for even our worst sins so we can feel forgiven. On top of that, our king is going to come back one day and reign over all creation. As we go to the table in communion, in, in the back end of service, the hope is that you and I would remember this in a fresh way. Through Jesus, God has forgotten your sins. They're paid for. 
Jesus paid the tab in full through his blood. Why have we been talking about blood and fountain and covering so much? Because it's only through that that this reality becomes true for you. Anyone can come to the table and take if their faith is in Jesus. But as you take the the bread and you drink uh, and you dip it into the cup and you take, you're remembering that Jesus' body was broken and his blood covers it all. And because of that, God looks at you and he smiles and he's overjoyed and he can't wait for the consummation of all things. He is delighted that his, his family has expanded and you are in it. So as you take, remember that the work is done. As you take, you have to kind of force yourself to remember, I don't need to feel dirty. I don't, I don't need to feel uh, condemned. I don't need to feel like he hates me because he has proven his love. How does he prove his love? Because Jesus was broken and his blood was shed for me. This speaks louder than any accusation that could come at you. I pray that your heart would find peace at the table. If your faith isn't in Jesus, I continue to, to invite you to. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know it all. If you get to know us, we got our issues. The beauty is the perfect one came to pay for imperfect people. To come into that, you ask the the Lord, Father, I I need the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Will you save me? I don't even fully know what that means, but will you save me and help me trust Jesus and what he's done? If you do that, you can come into the family of God and take knowing that you too have been perfected and are cleaned. Man, you guys can come back up. 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also. He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, part of when we come and we take is you're proclaiming the death even to your own heart. He has come and done a good work and I can feel safe. The accuser can be silenced because you get to point at the work of Jesus. He has done it all and he has saved me and I, I, I need to continue to follow him and I need to continue to ask for help and, and yes, I need to deal with some of those areas of conviction that the Spirit is placing on me but he has perfected me and he loves me and he cares for me. That's a joy that you get to experience at the table and I pray that your heart will be full there. We'll have some moments. We'll play one of the songs and have a little, a little time for you to pray. We keep putting that in. If it's been difficult for you to believe in the work that God has done for you, I just honestly would ask, would you ask for some help with that? Ask the Lord to help you, to show you the beauty of what Jesus has done. Tell him what you feel. I am having a difficult time believing this is true or feeling that this is true. Holy Spirit, will you help me? Come, encourage me, build me up in the work of Jesus, and I think that he will. Would you stand with me today?